like Pastor Blake said, we're going to begin this morning in Ezekiel chapter 18. Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon this time, upon your word. And I pray, God, that you would speak to me so that I could faithfully bring forth uh, your important truth from this passage. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ezekiel chapter 18 You've been studying here on Sunday mornings about the life of David. Well, I want you to fast forward three or four hundred years in the history of Israel, and you'll come about to the time of Ezekiel. You see, David's ministry was at the very beginning part when kings started to be established in Israel. Of course, David was not the first king of Israel. You know that from your time in 1 Samuel. A fellow named Saul was the first king of Israel. But as David became the second king and the house of David was established after him, and as the history of Israel progressed, there was a real decline in the kingdom. David wasn't a perfect man, but he was a generally godly man. And God really used him as a king. But the, the, the kings succeeding David, including his own son Solomon, didn't even measure up to David's commitment to the Lord and his life after him. So much so that over a period of several hundred years, you're coming to a real time of decline. That, that's sort of the general context from which the Lord spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was the capital, and which you could just jump right into these words, Ezekiel chapter 18, the first three verses. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. God spoke to Israel concerning a proverb that was going around, a thought, an idea, a meme that was current around the thinking of Israel at that time. And it, it, it might have been around for a long time. It might have been more popular in their Ezekiel's present day. But it was such a popular proverb that, that there's reference to it or quotation to it also in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Lamentations chapter 5. This was a proverb. What was the proverb? You saw it right there in verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now that proverb was actually something of a complaint. It was a protest. And this was the idea that the present generation was being unjustly judged or unjustly treated by God because of what the previous generation had done. One would think that if the fathers ate sour grapes, then the father's teeth would be set on edge. There would be a sour taste in the father's mouth. But they said, no, 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 according to this proverb... It's the fathers who ate the sour grapes, but it's their children's teeth that are set on edge. It's kind of like saying this. My dad ate the bad meat, and I got the food poisoning. Or, um, the reason I'm sick to my stomach is because my father ate something bad. 
Now, this proverb is all at the same time an attempt to blame the previous generation and to escape responsibility in the current generation. Now, that idea was so popular in Israel at that time that God specifically told the prophet Ezekiel, I don't want you to talk like that anymore, and I don't want my people to talk in those terms anymore. And the idea behind it, the reason why God was so offended at it, was because it said that God's unfair. It's not fair, God. It's obviously not fair that if my dad eats the bad meat that I would get the food poisoning. That's not right. How can you do it this way, God? God, you're unfair because you didn't punish the fathers. I mean, you think about it. It's not only unfair that I would get the upset stomach, but it's also unfair that my father escaped it. No, Lord, you're just not being fair. And it seems that those who quoted this wicked proverb would try to cover it, maybe find some refuge by misquoting Scripture. You know, people do that all the time. There's people all the time who try to excuse an error, who try to excuse maybe even a false teaching, and they do it because they'll quote a verse out of context. I wonder if the people who promoted this proverb didn't quote a passage from the book of Exodus out of context. Here it is, Exodus chapter 20, the second part of verse 5. It says this, Uh, God says, he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's actually from the Ten Commandments. And you could see somebody saying, see, the Lord said that he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But friends, people who would use that passage from Exodus chapter 20, or people who would think that way today, they're missing some important words. They're leaving something important out. And this is what they're leaving out. God said this, I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If you're the third and fourth generation and you continue in your hatred of God, well, you better believe you're going to suffer. You better believe it's going to come down to you. But, But there's an easy way to escape this dynamic stop hating the Lord stop turning from him turn your heart to the Lord and that is immediately broken if the descendants would love God they would not have the iniquity of the fathers put upon them anyway God was so concerned about this you saw it in verse 3 he said this you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. God did not accept the proverb just because it was a popular message. Now, proverbs were back then, and in some respect today, a popular form of media or messaging in the ancient world. And through the prophet, God said, no, that's a bad message. It shouldn't go out. People need to correct this in their thinking. Friends, you know, just because a proverb or a message is popular doesn't mean that it's true. There's a fair amount of people in the world today who really believe that um, only weak people believe in God. People believe it. Doesn't make it true. Um, Everyone has their own truth. 
Lots of people believe it. Does not make it true. Um, There's more genders than just male and female. Commonly believed in the Western world today. Doesn't mean it's true. Um, Communism will work this time. Often believed. Doesn't make it true. Those are all examples of things that are commonly believed, but they're just false. All right, now, God didn't just say stop saying the proverb. Starting now in verse 4, he's going to teach through the prophet the better way to think about this. Verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins shall die. God began his answer to this false proverb by declaring a very important principle. And here's the principle. All souls belong to God. The souls of the Father as well as the souls of the Son. If Israel complained that the previous generations had escaped the consequences of their sin, God assured them He has authority over every soul. Friends, I want you to think about that. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? I know that in our Western world, in the broader culture that we live in, there's a lot of people who give no thought to God at all. They either believe that God doesn't exist or they live as if God doesn't exist, but practically in their life, they give no thought to God at all. Did you know that those souls still belong to God? Now, when I say belong to him, I I don't mean that they are um, justified. I don't mean that they've been redeemed. I don't mean that they're, as we would use in just kind of Christian vocabulary, I don't mean that they're saved. I mean that they have to give account to God. They are under God's authority, whether they recognize it or not. God has authority over every soul, including the souls that deny him, mock him, reject him. God says this, behold, all souls are mine. And if that wasn't strong enough, I know this is kind of heavy, but that wasn't strong enough. Look at verse 4. The soul that sins shall die. Because God has authority over all souls, including the Father and the Son, God promised to pronounce judgment over every guilty soul. No one who should be punished will escape that judgment. That's a heavy thought, isn't it? And I know, it goes without saying that that thinking is almost universally rejected in our broader society today. It doesn't make it not true. It just makes the thinking of our modern society very against what God says. Now, I should just insert maybe as a sidelight here that there are some people who have approached this text and it's too uncomfortable for them. And when it says, the soul who sins shall die. They, they think that that means, or they want to interpret in the sense, to, to die physically. They, they kind of have in mind the judgment that was soon to come upon the kingdom of Judah from the Babylonian kingdom. 
the Babylonian Empire, and they said, well, what God's saying is that the, the sinful souls in Judah that had sinned, God will make sure that they die when the Babylonians come. But friends, I don't think that this pans out at all. We have to say that the book of Job and all of our personal experience teaches us that in this life, sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the righteous suffer. You see, through these words of the prophet Ezekiel, God has in mind the eternal life and death of these individual souls. Now, that's the heavy news of verse 4, and we don't want to sugarcoat it. It's very heavy. But look at verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, starting at verse 5. He says, but if a man is just and does what is lawful and right... If he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he's not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he's not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and executed true judgment between man and man, if he's walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live says the Lord God. Now friends, this is the, the, the flip side to the statement in verse 4. In verse 4, God said it very plainly, the soul that sins shall die. But if a man is just, God will not condemn that soul to death. And then God just goes to give just sort of a general description of a righteous man. This is what a righteous person does, especially according to many aspects of the Old Testament law. These are all different points of obedience. Something like 10 different points of obedience to the Old Testament law here described. And you could just go through them and note them. But the bottom line of it is, as it says in verse 9, he is surely just, he will live. God promises that that righteous one would ultimately live before him. He would not ultimately suffer in the age to come for the previous generations. Well, that sounds pretty easy, isn't it? Verse 4, soul that sins shall die. All right, I don't want to die. How do I live? Well, you just keep all these commandments. Okay, great, I'll keep all the commandments, then I'll live. Well, let's continue on. Please, if that's kind of the thinking you have, that's fine. But you've got to listen to the end of the message. Don't, don't tune out. Okay, you've got to hear what, what, what we end with here. But let's move on to verse 10. If he begets a son, okay, in other words, if the righteous man of verses 5 through 9, that very righteous man, if he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood or who does any of these things and does none of those duties but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he's oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he's done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. 
Okay, verses 5 through 9 describe a righteous man. Starting at verse 6, he describes the wicked son of the righteous man. And what's going to happen to that wicked son of the righteous man? Well, it's interesting how he presents it. The wicked son of the righteous man is essentially the mere image of the righteous man. Everything that the righteous man did right, the wicked son does badly. The the man of verse 6 didn't eat the sacrificial meals to the idols, but the man of verse 11 does. The man of verse 6 didn't defile his neighbor's wife. The man of verse 11 did. The man of verse 7 robbed no one by violence, but the man of verse 12 did. It's just a mere image. What does God say about that man? Look at it there in verse 13. Shall he then live? He shall not live. Now notice, though this wicked man had a righteous father, he's still going to have to answer for his own sin. His blood shall be upon him. You know, to answer the proverb that was originally mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, the wicked man ate the sour grapes and his teeth are going to be set on edge. Now, if that's not enough, let's continue it one more generation. We saw the righteous man starting at verse 5. Then we saw the unrighteous man starting at verse 10, his son, Now let's take a look at the grandson, starting at verse 14. If, however, he begets a son, I hope you're not, I had to read this a few times before it was straight in my mind. First we have a righteous father, then we have his wicked son, and now we have, we're going to see, the righteous son of the wicked father. Verse 14, if, however, he begets a son, who sees all the sins that his father has done and considers, but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone nor withheld a pledge nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who's withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brothers by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So we have the story here in these verses, don't we? We have a a righteous grandfather, we have a wicked son, and then we have a righteous son. And as it progresses through, through these three generations, God makes it clear, each one of these individuals, each one of these generations is going to have to answer for their own sins before God. Notice if you see in verse 17, he says of this righteous son of the wicked father, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. If the son is righteous, he won't suffer for the sins of his wicked father. Again, to answer the proverb back in verse 2, 
The father ate the sour grapes. It's the father's teeth who will be set on edge. Now notice this. The righteousness of the son will not justify his wicked father. As it says there in verse 18, he shall die for his iniquity. Folks, I, I need to just pause here and make some very practical, upfront points about this. This passage teaches us so clearly that you can't stand before God and say, look at my godly grandfather. Now look, I, if you had godly grandparents, praise the Lord. I have to say, that's not the story of my life. Um, my parents were good parents, but they weren't believers. My, my father later came to faith, but my parents weren't believers growing up. Neither were my grandparents. My, my mom will speak sometimes of some of my uh, ancestors on her side who were Methodist preachers years and years ago, but I really don't know too much about that. But the bottom line is simply this. You, you can't stand before God on the basis of a spiritual heritage that you have. Now, if you can go back through generations and say, look, th this one was a preacher and this one was a godly man and this one was all this, wonderful, that's a great heritage to have. It's better to have that than to not have it, but it will not justify you before God. You can't stand before God and say, look at my godly grandfather, but neither can you stand before God and say, look at my wicked father. That's what they also wanted to do. They wanted to excuse their sin by pointing to the wickedness of the generation that went before them. Now, I suppose it's always been characteristic that generations like to point fingers at each other. You know, the, the, the younger generation looks at an older generation and just kind of rolls their eyes and says, oh man, I can't believe we got to inherit the mess that you created. And then the older generation looks at the younger generation, and then they shake their head. You got younger generation rolling their eyes, you got older generation shaking their head, and they're just saying, oh man, I can't believe how things have gone downhill with the next generation. I don't know if we're going to make it on. This is, it's been this way since the beginning of time, no doubt. I don't doubt that Adam looked upon his descendants and said, well, it's fallen pretty far now, hasn't it? Of course, Adam, you started it all. That's your responsibility. But that's another situation. But the bottom line is this. Even though we all have this tendency, it doesn't get you anywhere with God to blame the wicked generation that went before you. Friends, there is no group salvation or group damnation. Salvation is not a matter of finding the right church and joining it. Now, I believe in good churches. I'm very pleased that our friends here who have moved out from Santa Barbara have landed in such a good church, and, and, and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's fantastic. But well, I'm here to tell you, you could attend this church week after week. 
and still never do your individual business with God. And you could suffer the fate that Ezekiel speaks of. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Well, wouldn't that be a tragedy for you to just assume that you're right with God because you're in the company of people who are right with God? That, that can't work. There's no group salvation, nor is there any group damnation. Each individual soul is responsible and must answer to God. If you want to skip down a few verses, I'm not going to go through every verse of Ezekiel chapter 18, but if you want to skip down a few verses, take a look at verse 20 with me right now. Here, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel in verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You know, sometimes we say about people, Maybe we think they're in sin. Maybe they are in sin. I mean, it's just, maybe that's just the perception. But we look at people and we say, that's between them and God. I was thinking about that phrase the other day. And you know what? It's true. It is between them and God. And it may very well be between them and God. Preventing them from really coming to God. But they... And every individual soul will have to reckon itself and do its business, so to speak. Have its responsibility before God. Now this uh, principle is stated so clearly and so repeatedly in Ezekiel 18 that there's no mistaking it. Now, I mean, look, we've just gone through these verses. It's pretty plain here. You don't need to be a genius of biblical interpretation to figure this out. But I want you to know that you would say that this is true, this is important, but it is not completely universal in God's dealings. That there is an exception to this built into God's plan. There are two significant exceptions to this principle that, that everybody's sin, everybody's righteousness will be upon themselves. Here's the two significant exa- uh, uh, differences or exceptions to this. The first one was a man named Adam. And the second one was a man named Jesus Christ. See, this is how it works. The guilt of Adam was passed on to the entire human race. He is, as it were, a head of humanity. And because every one of us is either a son of Adam or a a daughter of Eve, we've inherited something of that sinful nature. Now, I I know somebody might say, well, that's not fair. I don't want to have anything to do with that sinful nature received from Adam. I just want to be judged on my own sins or my own righteousness. And I say, you're welcome to it. Because we just weren't born with this sinful nature. We've added to it with our own chosen sins, have we not? But there was something in Adam. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 5, especially at verse 12. That in Adam, 
We all die. We've received something from him. But then there was a second great head of the human race, Jesus Christ. By the way, the similarity between Adam and Jesus, one of the great similarities between them is that they were both sinless men. Now, Adam started out sinless and didn't stay that way very long, but Jesus lived his entire existence sinless. These two sinless men became fathers, heads, if you will, of the human race. Everybody's born in Adam, and everybody can be born again in Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is passed on to all who believe on him. Again, that's very plain in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And these two men, absolutely unique in all humanity as representative heads of humanity, they see their respective wickedness and their respective righteousness upon others. All right, let's skip down now to verse 30. Kind of look at a summary statement here and a call to action. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his own ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. You see, this error of believing in communal or family salvation or communal or family damnation is so serious and so dangerous that God unmistakably emphasized the individual's responsibility before God. Look, I I don't deny, and I, I have a feeling none of us would, none of us would deny that every one of us have inherited advantages or disadvantages from our family. Look, I think I told you before that I had a good mom and dad who raised us very well. We didn't grow up in a Christian home, but my parents were good parents, and they did a good job raising us kids. That's a blessing. And I know not everybody has that blessing. We don't deny at all that there's relative advantages and disadvantages to how we grow up but those advantages are not enough to make us right with God and any disadvantage can be overcome with God the bottom line is this is that neither righteousness or evil is predestined for a person by their heredity And I also don't want to deny this, that there's some sense in which God looks upon a community and he may bless a community or judge a community. But that has much more to do with the blessings on this earth, not someone's eternal destiny. The great truth that this teaches us is this. God's love is individual. 
God cares about each person individually. Not just as a group, not just as a class, not just as a community, not just any of the ways that we like to group people. God looks at people as individuals. He loves them individually. He offers them salvation individually. And he will judge them individually. That's why he says in verse 30, Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Because of this principle of individual responsibility before God, it's essential that every soul repent and every soul prevent their iniquity from becoming their ruin. I can imagine at this point somebody could walk away from this text in Ezekiel chapter 18 with exactly the wrong and maybe even a dangerous idea. I need to do a little uh, preventative control here and make sure that doesn't happen. You could walk away from this and say, all right, well, Ezekiel 18 explains it. Pastor David's explained it. I get it. It, It's pretty clear. All I got to do to get to heaven and to be right with God is live a good moral life. If I live that good moral life, I'm good. It, It says it right there, doesn't it? But God shows us that that's not the case. Look at it here in verse 31. And get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I just thought I had to keep the rules. Well, you, you do need to be righteous before God. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that that being right before God is not just a matter of keeping the rules. It's having a new heart and a new spirit before him. Now, when I read phrases like this, I get kind of excited because I'm always on the lookout when I read my Bible for these phrases and words that are suggestive of what the Bible calls the new covenant, The new covenant is a theme that goes throughout the Old Testament and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus, before he died, the the night before he died, was with his disciples and he said, I'm going to make with my death, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, I'm going to make with my death a new covenant with my blood. And the Old Testament, in several different passages, uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel chapter 36, and all these different passages, it tells us what the new covenant's like. And what the new covenant is like is that God says, I'm going to put a new heart, a new spirit, I'm going to put my righteousness in you. See, here's the great truth. We all need to be made righteous before God. But you're not good enough to earn that kind of righteousness. But you know who was good enough? Jesus Christ. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And God says, for all those who put their trust in him, and when I say put their trust in him, that's what I mean. I mean to trust in, to rely on, to cling to Jesus Christ, both who he is and what he's done for us, especially what he did at the cross and especially what he did in his resurrection. When a person does that, God says an exchange happens. That that individual's sin is taken and put upon Jesus Christ and 
the righteousness of Jesus Christ is taken and put upon that person. You will never be the righteous man or the righteous woman of Ezekiel chapter 18 by trying harder. Though, I do want you to try hard to obey God. That honors him and it glorifies him. But that's not how you're going to be the righteous man or woman that that is rescued in Ezekiel 18. No, it's going to be a received righteousness that you gain from a relationship of love and trust in Jesus. Did you see that question there in verse 32? Why should you die? What a question. What a thing to scream out to all of humanity, perishing towards destruction. God says, why should you die? Verse 32, therefore turn and live. God ended this prophecy with a strong, dramatic exhortation, a strong application. God's people should turn and live. They shouldn't have a fatalistic confidence or despair. No, they shouldn't have that in their forefathers or in their descendants. God has offered mankind a way to come to him. And that's why we need to come to Jesus Christ as individuals. Each soul bearing its own responsibility and receiving the free gift that Jesus Christ offers. Friends, to those who presume on God's grace... I think this chapter's a warning. To those who despair, this chapter's hope. And to those who are fatalistic, this chapter's a correction to you. Every one of us can put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Father, that's my prayer. I pray that every day, every individual soul here would come to you in trust and love and enjoy that relationship that you gave everything to purchase. Lord, I pray that every person who listens to this would be persuaded by the Holy Spirit that they can't rely on any group they belong to to make them right with you, but only in their relationship of love and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting and believing on him. That's our rest. That's our confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.